Welcome to our Glendale Baptist Church Bible Studies. We are continuing our studies in the book of, of Revelation. And today I want to look at um, the, uh, well, chapter 19, and we'll focus on verses 11 through 16. That's Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the, the winepress of the fury of, of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Now, as I mentioned before in the introduction in the, uh, to chapter 19, there are three distinct scenes that are laid out. The first one is the rejoicing that takes place in heaven between, and it, it really mirrors chapters four and five of the book of Revelation. And then we have the second scene, which is the marriage, a description of the marriage supper of the lamb and his bride. And then the third scene is the portrayal of the rider on the white horse. Now, verse 11 opens with the statement, I saw heaven open. And throughout the book of Revelation, that phrase, seeing heaven open, is a transition into not only another cycle of visions, but it usually is, is it gives John sort of a behind the scenes look at things that are taking place in the earth. So he sees certain things that are portrayed in the earth, and then he gets a glimpse of the reality behind those events in heaven. Uh, three places in particular where we see this phrase is in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, after uh, John has delivered the seven letters to the seven churches, which shows everything that's going on in the churches, everything from, from faithfulness to corruption and compromise, then he, he sees the door of heaven open, and John is able to look into the throne room of heaven and see God worship in the splendor of his glory in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he sees uh, the lamb slain sitting on the, on the, on the throne. So again, that's, that's a, that shows him sort of the reality behind the scenes. In chapter 11, he also sees the heavenly, heavenly temple open. And that gives, a, a, again, a sense of perspective in terms of the things that are taking place. And then in chapter 15, verse 5, he sees the sanctuary of the tent of testimony open. And that's set against the backdrop of uh, destructions and corruptions that are taking place within the earth. So when we see here that John sees heaven open. This brings us to that final scene or prepares us for the final scene of ultimate judgment, which is going to be set forth in the next, uh, next two chapters. 
So what I want to do is focus on five things because what John sees is Jesus portrayed as a conquering warrior. So there are five things related to his description that I want to focus on uh, and it helps to kind of tie together some of the things that we've already seen throughout uh, not only the book of Revelation, but throughout uh, redemptive history as set forth in the scriptures. The first thing to notice here is the contrast. The contrast between, because this is preparing us for Jesus' second coming to the earth, his second advent. So the contrast is between his entrance into the earth and his second advent as opposed to his entrance into the earth in his first advent and the entrance into Jerusalem as a part of that first advent, his entrance into Jerusalem um, in his week of, uh, before his, his crucifixion. In his first advent, he enters the earth as an infant, a vulnerable infant. He is laid in a manger because there was no room for him and, him and his family in the end. Uh, while, it, while still in infancy and his early uh, childhood years, the king was seeking to have him killed. So he enters into the earth in a vulnerable state. But then we look at his, his final entrance into Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. He rides in on a donkey. And riding in on a donkey as he enters Jerusalem, uh, the people cry out, Hosanna. And they cry out, Hosanna, in spite of the fact that his riding in on a donkey was symbolizing peace. When they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, their expectations were really for the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom. They were expecting Jesus to come in and to establish a geopolitical dynasty that would be the reestablishment of the throne of David. And this was really the concern of the religious leaders. And we see this played out, uh, especially in the aftermath of Lazarus' resurrection. I'll read from John chapter 11, verses uh, 47 through 53. Uh, this is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and beginning in verse 47 of John chapter 11, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know that you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for the one man that that one man should die for the people that than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest uh, that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Now, there are a number of things that are related there. Uh, John gives sort of uh, editorial note that Caiaphas didn't really understand the weight of his words, but in, in effect, he was prophesying according to the scriptures. But from his own purpose, what Caiaphas was saying is that if this man continues, then he is going to cause the people to, he's, he's going to cause the people to gather around another throne, which will make uh, Rome think that we are rebelling against the Roman Empire, and therefore they will come and, and, and wipe us out. So again, the religious leaders, as well as the populace, when they were crying out hosannas, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in spite of the fact that Jesus rode in on a donkey, which was a symbol of peace, they thought he was coming to overthrow Herod or the, the, the dynasty of Herod. And this is also why Pilate, because this is the charge that the religious leaders brought to Pilate against Jesus, that he was, he was an insurrectionist, that he was rebelling against the puppet king that they had established. So when Pilate uh, interviews Jesus, one of the questions that all four gospel records or all four gospel writers record is that Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus in uh, most of the gospels answers in a particular way that's uh, non-binding in a sense. He doesn't deny it, but uh, he, you know, he doesn't answer it explicitly. However, John is the only one who gives us a better understanding of how Jesus answers Pilate. And I say this because Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, symbolizing peace really with the temporal authorities, but establishing a higher order of his kingdom. So it's, it's a twofold dynamic here that, that the people didn't get. So in John 18, verse 36, when Pilate asked him, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, be, I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So in his first advent, Jesus comes into the world in humility, in human flesh. He comes born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. He comes into a culture and into a world not overturning the systems or the things that are in place, but he comes into the world to, to, to obey the law in our place and then to humbly submit to the divine authority of the Father to bear our wrath in our place. So he comes so that we, in his weakness and in his humility in his first advent, he would make us the children of God. And so even though outwardly he seems weak, outwardly, outwardly he seems vulnerable, but in that outward appearance of weakness, he's really establishing the kingdom of God. Let's not forget that when Jesus begins his public ministry, 
he makes this declaration, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so his answer to Pilate is that my kingdom is not as you define kingdoms. So in his first advent, he comes weak and vulnerable in submission to the will of the father. But the submission of his first advent has exalted him. So him coming in and offering himself up as a sacrifice, it is, it is a means of him being exalted. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says this. He says, let all, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Christ or both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. This Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made him Lord so that in his submission to the will of the Father in keeping the law and in bearing the curse of the law and then allowing himself to be judged by God and then buried in his flesh and raised from the dead, God has now exalted him. He who was always the eternal son of God has now in his human flesh been exalted so that Paul would say in his sermon on Mars Hill that God will judge the world by one man and that man is Christ Jesus. So God has made him Lord. So he who is the crucified lamb of God is now seated on the throne. And what John sees as the, as the, as the heavens open, he sees the slain lamb of God seated on a white horse because in his first advent he came in peace but now he is seated as Caesar when Caesar would go into battle now he is seated as a warrior and it's as a warrior and as a conquering king that he will re-enter into the earth and so earlier on in chapter 1 John says that behold he is coming and every eye will see him, even those who crucified him. So the contrast between his first advent and his second advent is that in his first advent, even though he was accomplishing the will of God by the power of the Spirit, he had every outward appearance of weakness and vulnerability. In his second advent, there is no subtlety, subtlety here. There is no mistaking. He is coming in majestic, military, ju a judicial splendor. The second thing to note are the names that are ascribed to Christ. And we'll look at two in particular because it also references a name that no one knew but him. But there are two names that are mentioned initially concerning Christ in as he is seated on on this white horse, it says that in verse uh, 12, uh, verse 11, that he is called faithful and true. In chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation, Jesus is called the faithful witness. The faithful witness. Now, holding in mind that 
the content, the most of the content of the book of, of Revelation is, is, is what God gave Jesus to give the church. And we noted this in the introduction, that this is the only place in scriptures where we see the prophetic function of Christ post-resurrection. Because Revelation says, this is the revelation that God gave to Jesus. So the word, the words of the book of Revelation are the words of Jesus to his church. Therefore, what is emphasized over and over is that he is faithful. He is faithful to what he has declared and he is the true witness. So Jesus is called the faithful witness. witness. And then also um, when he speaks to the church of Laodicea, Laodicea is the church that defined herself by her material wealth. And she thought she was healthy. She thought she was wealthy. She thought she was all of these things. But the one who is the true witness, Jesus himself, reveals himself in chapter 3 in, of, of uh, Revelation to the church of Laodicea, the faithful and true witness. So whatever you think about yourself, this is what you really are. And your assessment is unhealthy, but his is true. Uh, it says he is the faithful and the true witness and the whole challenge really of the beast throughout the book of Revelation, the challenge of the beast, the challenge of the harlot, and the challenge of the false prophets is to present to the world an existence that is antithetical to the absolute truth as established by God's word and as fulfilled in Christ. So when he says that he's the true and faithful witness, his words are true. What he says about our state. So uh, for instance, when he talks to the individual churches, the church that was poor, he says, you're poor uh, I know that your, 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 your circumstances are meager, but you are rich. So his word about them, his word to them is true in spite of the antithetical message of their circumstances and what others say to them and about them. So everything that God says, everything that God reveals to a fallen world is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And so his word, what God says through Christ and about him, about hum, the human experience, about uh, human history, all of these things are true. And this truth has been given to the church. Uh, Paul says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And not only is Jesus, his word is true, but also he is faithful. He is, uh, his word, everything that is, uh, that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of truth, but he is also faithful. He is faithful in everything that he has promised. So his words are true. And if we uh, look at the ministry of, of Jesus in his public preaching ministry, he preached about the judgment of God. He preached about uh, sin and forgiveness. He preached about law. He spoke concerning the gospel itself. 
He spoke about the reality of human nature, the struggles of the flesh. He spoke all of those things. And what he says through the course of his earthly ministry is really just a culmination of everything that has been revealed. So everything that we need to know about God, everything that we need to know about salvation, everything that we need to know about the trajectory of human history, Jesus has said it and affirmed it as being the word of God, and it is true. And the challenge, as we said, that comes from the beast and that comes from the harlot and that comes from the false prophets is to try to get us to look at another source for truth. I've mentioned in some of our previous studies, Paul's warnings in uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, where he talks about the gospel and those who love the gospel, but then he says that God would allow someone to come in and that would desecrate the holy place and they will perform lying signs and wonders. And Paul says that God would send a strong delusion so that they would reject the gospel or that they would believe these false things. And the reason is because they have no love for the truth. Well, we see it in John's day and we certainly see it in our day. How easy people are manipulated by that which is not true. And so Jesus is the faithful witness. He is, he is the truth. He is truth incarnate. Um, his words are true, and he himself is true. What, what he says about human experience, what he says about God is true. But not only is he the fulfillment and the embodiment of truth, but he also is faithful to his promises. The span of redemptive history presents a perpetual challenge um, to this fact of Jesus being faithful. It's a continual challenge that we see throughout redemptive history in two things, whether or not, or as it relates to what is true and whether or not Jesus can indeed fulfill what he has promised. That's the challenge of redemptive history. That the things that we hear and the things that we see challenges the truth claims that Jesus makes. And that's what Paul is alluding to. And some people will, with open Bibles, they will still not have a knowledge of truth or they won't trust the truth of Jesus because they're listening to other sources. But the other challenge and the other question that is, that's, that's portrayed throughout the whole span of human history is, will Jesus be able to deliver everything that he has promised? And as we look at our own experiences, Jesus says, and I love this in uh, the gospel of, of John with the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, he'll never die. And you think, okay, then we'll have eternal life. But then he says, but if he dies, he'll live again. Anyone, so, so here's the question, here's the challenge. Not only is what Jesus says true, 
concerning the forgiveness of my sins and everything else that he claims. Not only is, does human history challenge us to the truthfulness of what Jesus says, but can he deliver on what he's promised? He's promised that not only have I come that you would have life, but that you would have it more abundantly. And many Christians don't know how to define the abundant life. And so we look around at our circumstances and we wonder, can he deliver on this? Is he able to deliver everything that he's promised? And so here's what John sees as he sees the heavens open. He sees Jesus on the white horse being called faithful and true. That everything that he has said, all of his truth claims will be validated in his final return because some truth we understand enough until the Lord manifests the fullness of his purpose of human history. But we don't see all things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we see in part and we understand in part. But Jesus is full and absolute truth. And what John sees on that white horse is the embodiment of truth. And not only does he see the embodiment of truth, but on that white horse, he sees the fulfillment of every promise that Christ has ever made concerning the gospel. He is on a white horse because he's coming as a conquering warrior. But he who is on the white horse is faithful and true. It may not seem like it. It may not seem like everything that he says will be fulfilled in our own time and will be witnessed by our own eyes, but he is faithful and he is true. Here's the third thing we are told about uh, Jesus or third description about Jesus here. We are told that his eyes are like a flame of fire. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now this corresponds to the description that John sees in chapter 1 where he gets a vision of um, that's parallel, and we pointed this out to Daniel's vision in chapter 7 of the Son of Man, one who is like the Son of Man. And in chapter 1, John's vision also sees one whose eyes are like eyes of uh, like flames of fire. Now hold in mind also that he whose eyes are like flames of fire in chapter 1 verse 5, John says that he is, that Jesus, in talking about Jesus, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he who is the ruler of the kings of the earth sees, and that's the point of the burning eyes, that he sees that all that takes place within the earth. So he who is the kings over the ruler of the kings of the earth has eyes like flames of fire so that he sees everything that takes place within the earth. This is the point that is made in the individual letters to the seven churches. That he who walks in the seven churches sees and so therefore the words to the individual churches, he speaks to them about their struggles, 
He speaks to them about their strengths, their weaknesses. He gives them counsel because he speaks to them because he sees them. He sees those who have compromised. He sees those who have become corrupt. He sees them because he who has eyes that are like flaming fire sees everything. And so the word that he gives to them is especially suited to their situation because he sees their situation. And so when he calls them to repent, when he calls them, when he encourages them to, to maintain, he is speaking as one who knows all things about them. And so therefore, um, the words that he speaks to and the words that he speaks about them corresponds to what he sees. But understand, this also means that Jesus sees the suffering of those that belong to him. And not only does he see their suffering, but he also sees those who have contributed to their suffering. So once again, we put this image together, that he who was on a white horse indicating warfare is the true and faithful witness that his words are true and that his promises are trustworthy is also the one who sees and he sees absolutely and he sees what's going on in the world and he sees and knows and seeing corresponds to knowing he knows what's going on with his people. He knows what's going on with the rulers of the world. He sees and he knows. And so therefore, he who is faithful, he who is true, he who has flaming eyes is seated on a white horse and he is ready for battle. That brings us to a fourth description that John gives here of the one who's seated on the, on, the, on the white horse. On his head are many diadems. Now, these many diadems is really explained for us in verse 16. In verse 16, we are told that the name written on his thigh and robe is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he is, again, this corresponds to what we made in the previous point from Revelation 1, 5, where Jesus is seen as being the ruler over the kings of the earth. So in this final conflict, and I think this is important for us to understand because even when people speak of uh, the eschaton or uh, especially when they misrepresent what we've talked about in the past about Armageddon, uh, they kind of present this final conflict as a matter of two sovereigns going to battle and seeing who's going to come out on top. But that's not what this is. Jesus, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, is the ruler over all of the earth. What we see is that he sees all things and there is nothing that takes place in his created order that is outside of his power or beyond his purpose. 
So really what Jesus is coming to do in this final battle, he's not going to go into a battle with the evil one to see who ends up being the king of the earth. No, what we see is that he is coming as the sovereign ruler who is going to put in check all of his subjects that have rebelled against him. So he's, he's coming, he's not trying to gain anything. He already owns everything. He's not going to come to see who will end up winning. Everything in this portrayal demonstrates that he has already won. In chapter 12, verse 3, uh, we read of the red dragon who has seven heads and ten horns. But then it also says that this red dragon has seven diadems. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate aim of Satan throughout human history is to, is to get the image bearers of God to resist and rebel against or deny or dispute the sovereign rightful rule of God. That's what Satan has done throughout human history. He tries to claim for himself or not just himself because as we pointed out it's not a matter of not worshiping God and intentionally going to the church of Satan. Satan tries to set up anything other than God as the ultimate source of authority, very much like he says to the Lord in the book of Job. It's not that he, Satan is not deceived into thinking that he has more control than he does, but he says, look, here's what I can do. I can make him curse you. I can make him turn away from you. And ultimately, in his strategy against Job, his game plan against Job, mm -hmm. is the game plan that he has for all of humanity to make us resist or rebel against or deny or somehow misrepresent the, the obvious, overt, sovereign rule of Almighty God. But what we see here is that Jesus is portrayed. He who was seated on the throne as the ruler over all of the kings of the earth is no longer seated. He is now seated on a white horse. He's not sitting on a throne. And he is seeking to affirm once and for all his sovereign rule over all of human history and to bring into subjection all of those who have resisted and rebelled against him. R.C. Sproul used to say this about Jesus as our intercessor, that uh, everything post-resurrection, we see Jesus always seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he makes this, this observation as it relates to Stephen. When Stephen is stoned and he looks into the heavens, what Stephen sees is not Jesus seated, but Jesus standing. And he sees him standing, in essence, as the advocate that as Stephen is being stoned, he actually gets a, a portrayal of Jesus standing as our advocate in our place. What John gets to see here 
is what we see throughout the New Testament again is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. What John gets to see is our champion, our conquering king, our warrior king, our shepherd, not just seated on a throne, but he is girded in armor. He is girded and ready to avenge every wrong that we have experienced. Jesus is seated on a white stallion, ready to subdue and to subjugate all of those who have resisted and rebelled against his rule. So all of the fake sovereigns will now bow before him. As we mentioned from chapter one, he is coming back and every eye will see him, even those who crucified him. And what they will see is not the humble child that was born in Bethlehem. They will not see the, the walkabout prophet throughout Jerusalem who cried out that the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. They will not see the one who allowed himself to be arrested in a garden, nor will they see one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. What they will see is a king coming in his full splendor, not to expand his kingdom, but he will come to bring judgment against all of the insurrectionists against his kingdom. And he will solve it once and for all because he is Lord of Lords and he's King of Kings. That's not what he will be. That's what he is. Here's the fifth and final thing that we'll note about this description. And it ties into what we've just said about him coming as the conquering warrior. We are told that it, we're told in verse 13 that he is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. It's interesting that earlier, the people of God, the, the redeemed, the bride of the Lamb, that they have made their garments clean in the blood of the Lamb. But now Jesus comes in conquering, as a conquering king, and he has, it's almost as if he splattered blood on himself. So the question is, what, 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 whose, whose blood is it? It's, it's not his. We would, could try to force a correlation between the blood of the slain lamb, which we see in Revelation 5, or we could talk about the blood of the lamb that washes the robes of the saints. But no, he who washes our robes in his blood will now vindicate those that belong to him, and the blood that we see is the blood of the enemies. Dennis Johnson puts it this way in his book, Triumph of the Lamb. He says that he is clothed in a robe of blood, which is a preview of the blood of his enemies. Look at verse 15 again. And it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword from which, he, uh, from which to strike down the nations. 
and he will rule, rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of his wrath, uh, of, of the fury of the wrath of the God of God Almighty. This is him, the imagery of the wine press, uh, the wines being pressed and the the wine coming out, the grapes being pressed and the wine or the juice of the grapes coming out, the blood on the robe of the one who is seated on the white stallion is the blood of the enemies. And basically, because it hasn't even spoken at this point of their destruction, it simply affirms that their judge, judgment is certain. It's irreversible. They will not only be judged, and we'll come back and look at some of the details on, on that in our next uh, session, but the point that's being made here is that he who is seated on a white horse, who is faithful and true, who has eyes like flames of fire, who has on his head many diadems, who is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, he will bring to bear the final judgment on the wicked, those who dared to resist and rebel against his authority will be crushed and destroyed. And what we'll see is that this includes the beast, it includes the dragon, the false prophets, and all of those who shared in their rebellion. The point that's being made here is what we see is the Son of Man coming in the fullness of his glory and it brings into proper balance the humility of his first advent so that we will be joined with him in his second advent. And while we might seem like he did in his first advent, weak and vulnerable because of our external circumstances, the certainty because of what he has promised that he who promised is faithful is that not only will we who are covered by his blood, all of the blood that has been shed in the name or by the, the martyrs and those who belong to him will be avenged in the blood of the enemies of the lamb. The one who rides on the great white horse. Brothers and sisters, there are so many things that people can take and twist and take them out of their original context in terms of the message of the book of Revelation. But I think what we see throughout these pages is that there are many things that we see that we can't fully understand. And so, as we said from the beginning, the purpose of this book is to give comfort to the people of God so that we would be nourished and nurtured as these things unfold. But here and there, the Lord gives us a glimpse of the end to help us make better sense of our present moment. Make no mistake about it. Jesus reigns. And the Lord who reigns will also return. And in his return, between his present reign and his future return, there are many things that we don't understand 
as he tells one suffering congregation, I know many of you have suffered, but by the way, some of you are still going to be thrown in jail. But there is nothing that he has promised that he will not deliver. And so the future for the people of God always rests with the reality of who the Lamb is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And so as we deal with the circumstances of life and we hear so many things that are going on in the world, I invite you on, a, on, on you know, occasionally, just read what God says about the Lamb and look at your Savior seated on a white stallion with many crowns on his head and his eyes as flaming fire and he will deliver and he will vindicate even as he subdues everyone that has rebelled against him. And I think that does two things for us. It makes us mindful that those whose blood are, are, are on his robe should have been ours. In other words, if that is the blood of the enemy, that should have been us, which means that he was coming for you because while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. What that also means is that if his blood is on us, then that means not only are we not his enemies, but it means that we will not be conquered by his and our own enemies. Look at Jesus on the white horse and let your comfort rest in the certainty of his return and the condemnation of the wicked and the celebration of the righteous. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word and the many reminders that you give us that in spite of what we see and we personally experience, what you have promised in and through your son will be delivered to us. Let this be our encouragement and let this be our comfort as we navigate the days that you have appointed to us. Thank you for our humble Savior who condescended and was made flesh. Thank you for the victory over Satan in the wilderness and for crushing his head in his crucifixion. Thank you for his victory over the grave and his present session before you. But we thank you all the more that the fact that he is presently seated at your right hand guarantees that he who is seated on the throne will be seated on a white stallion coming to avenge the blood and the loss of any that have looked to you by faith. That he will expunge from the earth all of that which defiles it so that we would enjoy you and one another in the beauty of holiness for all eternity. Thank you for Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.